You are listening to a Raw Collective podcast. Hello and welcome to What Matters Most, a podcast hosted by me, Antonia Freville, and my good friend, Jackie Maguire, who also happens to be a clinical psychologist. Together, we will explore everyday issues that make up the moral and cultural climate of our era, issues that have a real impact on how we experience and feel about our lives. I hope you get as much out of them as we do. Hello there, everybody. Welcome to today's episode of What Matters Most. Jackie, how are you doing today? I'm good. Thank you so much. And you? Yeah. I am actually. Today's been one of those days that I thought was going to be pretty chill and ended up being like, I'm chasing my tail and only just catching up with the things I needed to do. But here we are having this chat and I'm actually really pleased that we are talking about this today because it feels like something that's very relevant and important to talk about. And interestingly, since launching season one of What Matters Most, Uh, We've had a lot of messages from lots of people, which has been so lovely with suggestions and requests on the subjects and topics to talk about. And the subject that we're going to talk about today has been the one that has been most requested. And while it's very sad that this is the case and our, our hearts go out to everyone who has made this request, I do feel really glad that we do have this platform to be able to talk about this. Today, we're going to be talking about looking after yourself after experiencing a natural disaster. Now, it's 2023. This has been a very challenging year for New Zealand and thousands of New Zealanders have been affected and displaced by the floods, by Cyclone Gabrielle and people listening all over the world. There is just one after another in a series of natural disasters that we are having to live with now. And people have a lot of questions about how on earth we do this. So Jackie, this is a big topic. Mm. It's a very serious topic. It's an important topic. And I feel like I actually just want to throw to you and ask you where you think we should start today. Sure. Thanks, Antonia. And I suppose, unfortunately, as you say, for me and my wearing my other hat in my working life, I have spent much time in the last six weeks researching this so that I could support New Zealanders in Hawke's Bay, Tairawhiti, Northland, West Auckland, and leaders who are supporting their people. But as you were mentioning your introduction, yes, my thinking goes to the absolute devastation that has occurred in New Zealand this year, but also the earthquake in Turkey and Syria. And You know, I have some quite vivid images that have stuck in my mind from this year, be it my old dance teachers that that owned the studio I danced in for 15 years standing in their home that was completely devastated by Cyclone Gabrielle and Lynn and Art being on the front page of the paper talking about their story and being in water up to their necks within five minutes. And I think, Lynn and Art, I'm sorry if I get this wrong, but I think they would be in their 70s now or if not close having to scale fences. So, you know, I I have personal connection to that. I have images of a newborn baby being pulled out of rubble in Turkey and that has really absolutely struck me. And then I also have images of communities pulling together. If we look here in in New Zealand, 
of people on the news saying, I will make it my mission to try and find as many people as I can. So regular everyday Kiwis supporting search and rescue to search houses and cars. I have images of people in Turkey and Syria who are by no means experts putting themselves at risk to search for people. And so I think this conversation is a tale of two halves. One, what is the impact of a natural disaster on us as human beings? And two, what we see in human community spirit when a group of people face such hardship. So I suppose, Antonia, to start, what is defined as a natural disaster? A natural disaster is anything that causes mass destruction to a community, to a city, be it floods, earthquakes, bushfires, for example. So you may think of Cyclone Gabriel, you could think of the Christchurch earthquakes, you could think of the bushfires across the east coast of Australia. Now that's different from a disaster that's man-made. So if you think about March 15, for example, that too was an absolute disaster, but it's not a natural disaster. And I think what I know to be true is that having information on what is normal to expect following a disaster for those that are living and breathing it is very helpful because not only for those in it, they can have a heads up around what to expect in terms of what they're feeling or not feeling or or the impact on their bodies, on their emotions, on their thinking. But also for the rest of us, if we're trying to support you know, knowledge helps us go, where can we best add value to those that are really in impacted communities too? So I will just speak and you interject and ask questions and comments as we go, I think might be the best way to have this conversation. Sounds good. So, So when you look at the research coupled with people's recounts of surviving a natural disaster, emergency management specialists would say there's really three phases of time following a natural disaster. The first one is what you would describe as the acute phase or the adrenaline phase. And really that lasts for as long as anybody is facing direct threat. So I think you could say, yes, when there's literally floodwaters coming for you, that is a direct threat. But having to find accommodation to house your family. So if I think about some of the families on the news from West Auckland that were placed in temporary accommodation, but then that temporary accommodation was coming up and they still couldn't go home and they don't have family or friends to stay with, there is threat of where will we house our family tonight? So that would still be an adrenaline phase. Mm -hmm. Fighting or navigating insurance companies is threat. Mm -hmm. So people may still be in adrenaline phase during those periods. So I really want to illustrate that the adrenaline acute stage isn't just for the moments, hours, days of the actual natural disaster. It is anything in the aftermath that would put your body on high, high threat, high alert. And it's important too that people understand this because it's okay to still be struggling, right? Like to still be finding yourself really triggered, to be finding yourself at a really short wick, to be close to tears or anger or frustration all the time, even after, as you say, the initial physical threat has gone down because you are still in this fight or flight mode. So we're hoping that this information enables people to have more understanding and compassion for what might be going on in their systems. 
So anytime you're directly facing threat, it would make sense that your body turns on your survival system. What does that actually mean in a practical day-to-day way? That means that people will be so, like action-focused and solution-focused. You know, people will be focused on how to stay safe, how to recover what they need to recover, how to navigate and manage insurance companies. Like people are absolutely focused on, if we look at this year, shoveling silt Mm -hmm. out of buildings so that you can start to even assess the damage and the cleanup. If you go back and you look at the days following the Christchurch earthquake, you know, that will be people trying to search and locate loved ones Mm -hmm. or navigating how to manage aftershocks for days. So, you know, I think it's really useful to just be cognizant that in those early days, people probably aren't consumed with how they're feeling. Mm. They probably have no idea how they're feeling. They're probably not feeling much at all. People are literally just in that tunnel-visioned action mode of securing safety for themselves and their loved ones. So they're those kind of really early days. What do we know when people are in that kind of fight or flight adrenaline phase? People's thinking is probably really wonky. It's hard to concentrate. Mm -hmm. People generally work, 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 action, action without looking after themselves. So if you've ever experienced trauma or, you know, the face of great threat, you'll probably know that you forget to eat or you don't sleep very Mm -hmm. well. Those basics get lost in the doing. Because there's so much to do. There's so much to do. And I think people just have this fever and this energy actually at the start of like wanting to crack on and do it. So, you know, you have some of those common signs physiologically, cognitively. At the start, I think the emotions are pretty blunted or not there because people are just in that action mode. The other side, though, really to this early phase is that from a mental health and wellbeing perspective, Sometimes at the start, you actually see a rise in well-being, which seems completely counterintuitive. People have been in the face of absolute devastation and loss. But what we see in those periods of time is that communities come together like Mm. never before, that people form these deep relationships and connections to those that have similar experiences for them. You see communities caring and watching out for people. We've seen that this year with community patrols through the Esk Valley with people Mm. frightened around the looting and the violence in Hawke's Bay. We saw that with the student army in in the Christchurch earthquakes. Mm -hmm. And in the literature, this is called the honeymoon phase, which is we really have this often belief as human beings that we will come together, bond together We will be heroic. We will overcome this. We will beat it together. And so, you know, actually you can find that there are moments of joy and laughter and connection in a time where you could really never imagine that given the loss people have gone through. So your body isn't designed to have a never-ending tank of adrenaline. It can only last for so long. And so I suppose the risk factor is if if that threat to you continues long-term beyond what your body can sustain from an adrenaline front, then people run the risk of becoming extremely fatigued, Mm -hmm. physically unwell, immunity going down and burning out. So when you look at all these phases, I'll revisit this, these signs are very clear, therefore, on what we need to be doing to ensure we look after people through these processes. So stage one, acute phase, adrenaline phase. When we're out of the face of immediate threat, 
the second and really longest phase in terms of psychological impact from a natural disaster is what some would call the cortisol phase, others would call the endurance phase. Basically, this is the rebuild. This is when the adrenaline has gone. You're now operating on cortisol, which is your secondary stress hormone. So cortisol is really designed to kick in for the long-term battle. It's designed to help you kind of give you an extra rev up, get your body going, keep your behavior going. Cortisol is very useful if that challenge continues for a little bit longer, but then ends. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately, for the long term, cortisol is very damaging to our body if we have elevated levels of cortisol long term. So again, if you think about people facing rebuild, what do we know for people through that period of time? I think there's a crash in well-being because reality starts to sink in. It sounds harder to me because you had that initial adrenaline when there's so much to do. And as you say, your feelings are often blunted because of literally the sheer amount of stuff you have to practically do. And then once that's over, the next phase, that's a relatively short phase, isn't it? Mm. But the rebuild phase, that must seem and feel interminable to many people, which is a very hard reality to face. Yeah. I think reality of how long it takes to rebuild and come back from natural disaster sets in. And it's not information that anyone who's living through a natural disaster really ever wants to hear. But case studies would show it takes anywhere from two to five years for communities to rebuild. I think those in Christchurch would say it was longer than that. So Mm. that's not a short turnaround. And you then have people that need to be able to continue to go to work, earn an income, raise children, look after parents, whilst trying to rebuild their lives. For people that have got deep connection to the land or whenua, there is great loss Mm. if there is visible damage to the landscape. And, And again, you think about Cyclone Gabriel, you think about bushfires in Australia, you think about Christchurch, there was great damage. And so that's a real loss. I think you have people that are grappling with grief around loss of safety and security, loss of power, or feeling like you've got an ability to control what happens in your life and in the world. Be in the driver's seat of your life because you have been and suddenly you're at the whim of nature. Yep. I think you have people where the anger starts to set in or the lack of fairness. In communities, you start to then often see frictions start to occur, frictions. So between the those who really suffered in the natural disaster versus those that perhaps were luckier or underwent less damage. That's natural too, isn't it? Those that got insurance payouts versus those that are still struggling with the insurer. And so whilst at the start there's this real bond Generally, over time, unfortunately, as as the stress continues, and again, we have to look at this through a lens of people that are tired and stressed and really not escaping challenge for a long time, Mm -hmm. that I can see how for people in that mode and in that environment, that splits start to occur. Mm -hmm. So I think when you kind of characterize that stage, it is a grind stage. It's a marathon. It's, you know, really trying to find and succumb the energy to keep going through that phase. Mm -hmm. The final phase really is what they would call the identity crisis stage. And why do they call it that? The third stage is kind of the rebuild has happened and you've re-entered life. So perhaps you've rebuilt 
your home or the local school has been re-established or community starts to, I suppose, look more normal and less damaged by disaster. And what you hear from survivors is things like they're finally back in their their house and they go to get something out of a drawer, but it's been lost in the Mm. disaster, or they start to actually realise the sentimental things for them that they no longer possess because they're back in an environment where they should normally have access to that. Mm -hmm. And I think people really start to question who they are because the pillars of their identity have have changed. changed. No one would be the same post-disaster as they were pre-disaster. And so, again, what's meaningful and important to you? What do you value? What do you want your life to look like? And we'll get to in a second what you do to support yourself through each of those three stages. But I'm not saying that everybody will not cope through this period of time. In fact, the research is very clear that two-thirds of us will manage well no matter how significant a disaster or trauma is. Many of us cope well. Some of us even will experience what the literature calls post-traumatic growth, which is that disaster can enable you to refocus on what's important, strengthen your relationships, you know, find new meaning in life. And that can be actually very rewarding. And people can end up on the other side in a better mental health and wellbeing space, more satisfied in life than they were previously. So this definitely isn't a story where everyone will struggle long term. Or won't be able to or cope. Or won't be able to cope. Even though it must feel like that so many times, we can bank on the fact that human beings are resilient yeah. and you most likely will be okay. You most likely will, absolutely. But there are some very useful steps to take throughout that journey to give yourself the best shot. Prepare for your next adventure with Emma Sleep. For over seven years, Emma has transformed the sleep of more than four million people worldwide by working with sleep experts to carefully design and engineer products that provide great support and pressure relief for your most peaceful sleep ever. Now you can wake up feeling fully refreshed, recharged and ready to face the day with a smile. Upgrade to the coolest, most supportive sleep today with their range of mattresses, mattress toppers, pillows, mattress protectors, and even ensembles and bundles where you can save more. And if you're still unsure about upgrading, don't worry. Emma Sleep offers a 120-night trial for their mattresses and beds, so on the occasion you don't find it a match for you, you can simply return it within the 120-day period and get 100% of your money back guaranteed. But that's not all. They also offer a 10-year warranty for their mattresses and free delivery nationwide. So, What are you waiting for? Head over to emmasleep.co.nz and shop using our code UMATTER for an additional discount. You know, if we go back to those three stages now and say, well, how do you look after yourself? What do you do? You know, in the start, in that adrenaline action phase, I think it's really important to do the basics. So get up, have a shower, ensure that you sit down and eat a meal as a family or, you know, have someone else prepare your meal if you're kind of doing the hard labor all day, but really trying to, even if you can get some exercise in the day, you know, the work will still be there. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I saw on the news someone saying, 
work is now my new name. I'm just going to work until this is fixed. And I thought, wow, that's that's very admirable to say that, but no human being can work without recovery. You right. know, like no body can do that. You know, you know, no physical body, let alone anybody. And so, you know, I really think going back to basics and putting really fundamental health routines in place is very important. I also think being gentle on yourself and knowing that any reaction is okay. So whatever you're feeling, however you're wanting to respond, it's like there's no right or wrong way to respond in the face of such a significant And you might be responding totally differently to your neighbor who experienced very similar trauma, but your feelings and responses are totally different and that's okay. Because every person in this world has a different background, family, personality, genetic makeup, life story. So, yep, you and I may live next to each other. We may have both experienced this cyclone. We may have both lost our houses. But my worldview and my life experience will be different to yours. And so I think it's really important you don't judge your own reactions and you don't judge other people's. Mm -hmm. I also think, I suppose, from a clinical perspective, we would say that symptoms like not sleeping, Sleeping well, being erratic in your emotions, wanting to avoid anything that triggers you in terms of hearing loud rain noise or you know, having an aftershock post-earthquake, wanting to avoid anything that is triggering is pretty normal at the start. You know, wanting to either distance yourself from people or be reassured more often. All of those signs, which people have asked me lots about post-traumatic stress disorder following a natural disaster. And all those signs I just mentioned are PTSD symptoms. Right. But in the first four to six weeks following a natural disaster or following trauma, actually they're just normal signs of coping with something horrendous that has happened in your life. And so it is very important to me that we do not put clinical labels. And you don't have to diagnose yourself with a disorder as such. You're just having a human response to a terrible thing that's happened. It's it's adjustment. It is like you coming to terms and grappling with what is now your reality. So I, I think from an individual perspective, that is really important. For children during that time, if you've got kids at home, I think as parents, what we can do is to try and reinstate a sense of normality, safety, routine as much as possible, and to talk openly with your children based on their age around you know, how everybody is keeping themselves safe. Because I think the largest fear for children is that something will happen to the people they love. Yeah. And so being able to reassure or talk about plans to keep everybody safe or when children go back to school, you know, telling them where you'll be and, and what you're doing to keep yourself safe is really is really helpful and important. Mm-hmm. In the second stage, that endurance phase, what do we know is helpful? I think partly it's getting breaks mm-hmm. away from the disaster, away from the rebuild. And survivors often talk about feeling very guilty about that in terms of how could I go away on holiday? How could we go and stay with family? When there's so much when to do When there's so still. much to do, when I've got an expectation on myself to restore my family's life or actually everybody in the community is doing this, we all want to stick together and rebuild. But I think knowing that that journey is likely to be a long road to recovery for those that have been seriously impacted, you've got to get some space. Mm. I think it's the same with grief, like for people that have lost loved ones. And I say to people, you can't grieve 24-7. You need space from the grieving. None of us can maintain that. And I think it's the same in this rebuild phase. You cannot be in constant rebuild mode all the time. And so 
generally you will hear from survivors that the best thing that they do for themselves and their family during that time is to take periodic trips away. That's a great advice. Well, it's practical, right? Mm, you know, yeah, like every is. six weeks or two months, go away for a weekend, mm-hmm. get away from it and literally change the location, that change you are the in. location yeah. and change the environment and have some normal time that isn't characterized by post-disaster recovery. Yeah. The other recommendation from experts in this field, because, you know, I wasn't an emergency management expert, you know, I've, I've learned this by analysing and assessing other people's data and research and, and he, listening to stories, is that through that time you really have to connect with what's meaningful to you. So that's not saying you just be grateful for what you've got and therefore you should be okay and positive about your life. No, the loss you've experienced is very real and you are absolutely able to to name that and own that. But can you go, what is really important to me? Is it my family? Is it my community work? Is it my belief in relationships and supporting that? What is it that's meaningful to you? And can you really connect with those things through the rebuild and recovery? And what about people whose home was really important to them, Mm. whose values around home and safety and security of home was paramount to their identity. And now that home is gone. Like, how do you feel okay when you don't know where your home is? Yeah. So I think there's multiple strands to that conversation, Antonia. For people that have lost their sense of safety in the place that they live, so the region that they live, I think it's really important to get to a place where you can acknowledge that for yourself. There is no right way to respond. And I think rebuilding a home in a place where you don't think you can feel settled in the long term probably is going to be very difficult for you. So, you know, I suppose I I look back to the Christchurch earthquakes and think about the number of people that relocated after that. Some chose to stay and rebuild and some chose to move. And I don't think there is a right decision. It is just what is right for you. So I think one is going do I think I'll be able to be settled and feel safe on this land? I think that's an important question. You know, whatever that answer is, if your actual home was very important to you, can you go through a process where you grieve the loss for your home? And, you know, ritual is important for grief and loss, especially when we look at loss of life, right? Across cultures, we've got different ways of recognizing and processing loss, why can't we do the same for loss of something like your home, which I think is more than bricks and mortar for a lot of people? Absolutely. It represents family memories. It represents that sense of peace for many people. If it's your sanctuary and it's housed it's housed your life, then that's great loss. And for almost everyone who has experienced natural disaster, it happened in an instant. They were going along their lives and their houses and then it was gone, either completely destroyed or unsafe to the point where they are not allowed to enter again, which, I mean, both of those situations are so difficult. So there's so much shock involved Mm. as well, right? Like that must take a long time to unpack. Mm. And as you say, so important to give yourself the time and to acknowledge how important and how useful and helpful a ritual around these things Mm. can be, even when it's not about a person, Mm. when it is about a place and about things Mm. that are important to you. And it may not be now. It might be in three months' time. It might be in a year's time you feel able to do that. But, you know, does that look like blessing the land where your house was? Does that look like getting together and sharing memories for you and for your family or for your friends around the memories that were created 
in your home is that song, is that planting on the like, do you have a way to make it meaningful for you? And can you mark that for yourself? They would be my thoughts on that. Yeah, great. I think the other thing that's really important to notice is when you look at the life cycle, I suppose, of impact after natural disaster, there tends to be another drop in well-being at the one-year mark. And it's interesting, I have been speaking to survivors of the Christchurch earthquakes actually this year in relation to the cyclone, and many of them spoke about the fact that at the anniversary mark, it's the first time they saw the footage from the earthquake because they were in it at the time. Too much to do. They weren't sitting there watching the six o'clock news. They were surviving. And so I think it's just quite useful for people to know that you might start to feel better or have hope or feel like you're kind of getting your stuff together and and moving on in a useful direction. But if at that one-year mark you notice that you're struggling, it's really, really normal. Mm -hmm. And for most people, it too shall pass. Yeah. So acknowledge it. But again, you don't have to worry that you're, for one, doing grief wrong, doing loss wrong, like whatever you're doing is fine, but also you don't have to worry that that you have PTSD. Mm. You don't have to label yourself or diagnose yourself. Actually, you're behaving in a way that is very normal mm. to the human condition. And some people will develop post-traumatic stress disorder. And, and how would you know if that's you? How would you know, I need to go and speak to my GP or to a therapist, I'm worried. I suppose if the impact from the natural disaster is getting in the way of you living your everyday life. So if you have nightmares or you're hypervigilant and jumpy or you find it very difficult to connect in relationships, you know, or you have flashbacks and that is sticking around for months, long, you know, weeks to months and, you know, you're finding it hard to get up, work, be part of the family, engage in in regular everyday activities, that would be your signal that actually maybe I do need some extra support. Which again, there's no failure in that. Absolutely not. So in this rebuild phase, I mean, all these phases are challenging, but rebuild almost seems particularly hard because of the the length of it. There is so much uncertainty. I mean, I've talked to so many people who were affected recently by the floods and by Cyclone Gabriel, and they are still in an absolute place of flux. They don't know what's happening to their destroyed house. They don't know what's happening to their land. They don't know where they're going to be living. Everything is in a state of flux and peak uncertainty, the results of which when the answers come will really affect where they live, what they do, what how much money they need to make, what schools they send their children to, etc. So life at the moment is very uncertain and it feels like the answers are a long way away and out of their hands because they have to rely on other organizations to give them those answers. Do you have any advice on how people can better cope with uncertainty and how you can plan for a future when you have no idea what your future will look like. Yeah, so so I think it's important to acknowledge that the human brain hates uncertainty, ambiguity. You know, we are not designed to live long-term in that state of flux. It's pretty anxiety-provoking for people. And so in response to that, I would say that during those times, we have to, like, narrow down our life. And what do I mean by that? I would say we have to try and not do too much, We have to, as a family unit or as a partnership or as an individual, whatever your life circumstances and whoever makes up your day-to-day life, can you as a unit 
say, how do we want our life to be characterized in the next week, month, year? You know, how do we want to live? How do we want to make decisions? How do we want to feel through this period of time? And I think, again, there is no right or wrong way. You just have to do what is right for yourself. So I would say to people in peak uncertainty, take one day at a time, work out what you absolutely need to know or to have in place so that you can function. So, you know, is that focusing on getting stable accommodation for your family? Is that focusing on knowing how income will be made so that you can feed the family? Actually, that's where your attention needs to go right now. Alongside, say, having a sense of agency for your family of we still want to feel connected through this period of time. We want to still celebrate our milestones through this time. You know, we want to have some life that's not just defined by a natural disaster. So how do we do that? Do we have at mealtime, we talk about things other than the cyclone? Do we have that on Sundays we all do a family activity together or I meet up with a friend and go for a walk and we've got that in place and that's a routine? You know, can you really go, how do we want to live through this period? And can you define that for yourselves? I also think you have to make some decisions to look after yourself through this period of time. So if you're somebody that's normally really social, but actually you need to conserve your energy for your immediate family and for getting through, then maybe it's okay you know, to say for now, actually, we're going to just narrow down how much contact we have. And we've got particular people in our life that we feel really get it, or we feel like they're really supportive. And we're going to prioritize those relationships rather than trying to maintain all the relationships in our life, for example. So I think it is about really working out what you need to function and to self-care through this period of time. And there's no cookie cutter answer to that, Antonia, it will be different for every person and family. It seems like the anchor is coming back to the basic needs of now. Like these, it's an unprecedented time when you are in the face of a natural disaster. So yeah, how do you plan for the future? You can't really. No. So you have to lower your expectations. Well, the the term for that in the psychology world is radical acceptance, which really is coming to a place of acknowledging that life is what it is right now. So how do we live alongside within that life rather than trying to shift it, change it, fight it? So when Jackie and I were thinking about sponsors for this show, it was really important to both of us that we partnered with companies that align with our values and our way of thinking. Absolutely, it was a non-negotiable. So we are really delighted to team up with Whoop, a beautiful food box company that helps you create delicious dinners in under 30 minutes. Do you know, Antonia, my family have used Whoop over the years. And if you're anything like me, which I know you are, life is busy and the mental load is large. And I'm always looking for effective shortcuts to make life simpler and easier. And with Whoop, it is amazing. The veggies are pre-chopped. The sauces are handmade, and man, can you taste the difference. The recipes are just so easy to follow, and what I love is that the ingredients are sourced right here from New Zealand. And Antonia, this is the bit I know you will love. With Whoop, there is so much less chopping, less mixing, less faffing, and what does that mean? It means less cleaning up. 
Yes, Jackie, you know me very well. The no chopping and way less cleaning up factors could be my favourite parts of Whoop. And I actually find that Whoop just makes my whole day easier. Just knowing that I don't have to think of what we're going to eat, I don't have to go to the supermarket, I just don't have to think about dinner at all is a huge weight off my mind. I'm getting hungry talking about all this beautiful food. Do you know another wonderful thing about Whoop is that everything is recycled through their back-to-base program. You just rinse out the containers, you put all your packaging back in the box, even the soft plastics, and you leave it out to be collected when your next box is delivered. And if all that wasn't tempting enough, Whoop are offering our listeners 30% off their first box. So you just head to whoop.co.nz and use the code podcast at the checkout. That's w-o-o-p.co.nz and use the code podcast. And what about for people who, in any phase of this process, who are finding it so difficult to have hope for the future, who are really in quite a despair at what is going on. And when they look to the future and they just can't feel anything but more fear and more despair, Mm. what would you say to those people? Oh, my heart goes out to you. It's such a hard place to be. We know very clearly that when you can hold realistic optimism, so I'm not talking about Pollyanna, toxic positivity, everything will be okay. I'm talking about realistic optimism, which is a mindset which says that nothing is permanent, nothing is fully pervasive, and hardship is not personal to you. That's realistic optimism. A mindset where you can look at a challenge and you hold those three Ps. This is not personal to me. This will not be permanent. This is not every aspect of my life. It's not pervasive. If you can hold a mindset in the face of challenge where you can remember those things, we know that people get through challenges better physiologically and from a mental health, emotional, social perspective. How do you do that when you're in the depths of despair? You name your feelings, name them to tame them, acknowledge them. No feeling is a wrong feeling, but if you can be aware of it, if you can name it, if you can write about it, talk about it, you're more likely to process that. Can you surround yourself with people that have a realistically hopeful outlook. Emotions and mindsets are contagious. You'll see this yourself when you work in a team that's either completely toxically negative or you're in a team that has a lot of fun together. You know that the way people think and how they feel spreads pretty quickly in group environments. So are there people in your life that you say, I'm actually going to prioritize spending time with them because I really value or appreciate or admire the way that they are tackling, mm. you know, what, what's going on at the moment. I also think, and I, I should have said this at the start, really, it's massive. And Jackie, here's your strap over your hand for not saying it at the beginning. The number one factor for recovery, really, for any community is social connection. The research calls it social capital. So, you know, who are your people through this time and how are communities supporting each other? And I think really when it comes to, especially the early days after a natural disaster, people probably will only want to spend time with people that get it. You know, the rest of us around the country, we don't really get it. No, we don't. We can read research, we can listen to survivors, 
It's not the but same. we do not have that lived experience. And I think people don't want to have to relive and talk about it all the time. And so, again, I would say it's okay right now if you just want to spend time and prioritize people that get it. Mm-hmm. You know, it might not be the same in 12 months or 24 months, but if that's the case now, you know, then do it. Then do it. That's valid. Okay. Thank you for that, Jackie. That was, yeah, great advice. So I think we got up to the final phase. Yeah. In terms terms of what do you do? What do you do? I think that comes back to your values, right? Again, of being open and having support to look at what's meaningful and important for you in your life going forward. In this new normal. When you're back in the new normal and what do you do? Yeah. And taking time, I suppose, to really process what you've journeyed through over the last X amount of years to get to that point and being open to the fact that perhaps that is different to pre-disaster. And so, you know, really, I think taking time to be inquisitive, to do some of those exercises about what's important to you, grieve what you've lost and invest in building your new life, I think is where you need to be at. So Jackie, turning our attention to the people that are most vulnerable in our communities, including children, how might we spot if a child is not coping well? Yeah, and I think we need to break that up into younger children versus older children or adolescents. But typically with young children, if they are struggling post a natural disaster, you might see a regression in their behavior uh, or in their attachment need to their parents. So you can see children that start to bedwet again or who want to sleep with a parent or have the light on when they go to sleep. Uh, You might see children that you know, have an increase in separation anxiety again. Conversely, you can see angry outbursts. So children can go internal or they can go external with their response, but their behavior, young children, will show you that they're struggling or that they've been impacted by the natural disaster. In older children, what might we see? You know, we can see older children that want to stay close to home or close to parents and not go to school. Uh, We can see children that start to withdraw from their peers or or from their natural sports or or activities. We can see children that go the other way and start to disrespect their teachers, not engage in their classroom or their homework, challenging authority, getting argumentative with parents. For adolescents, we can see alcohol and drug use go up or children or adolescents really starting to engage in unsafe ways to regulate emotions. So there is a range of things that we can spot and see. I suppose what I'd say to any parent is that you know your child better than any template or expert out there that's never spent time in a room with your kids. Trust your gut. If your gut is telling you that something's up or that you think your kids are struggling, you're probably correct. And then what do parents or caregivers do? Yes. So I think it's really important that we just acknowledge our children's feelings and and have that same policy of any feeling is okay. There's no right or wrong way to respond. I think it's important, you know, in the short term, if you've got children that want to be near you, sleep with you, just go with it for a while. Like that's your child's need or, or showing you that they require a sense of safety and that you as the adult that is the pinnacle of their world is what provides that. So look, I personally am a parent that, you know, has tried pretty hard to put good bedtime routines in place and I've sleep trained my children. And But, you know, in these circumstances, that just gets put to the side. You know, you've actually just got to care to that fundamental core human need of feeling safe. And so I think that's our primary job 
as a parent. I think depending on the age of your child is how much you communicate with them. So an adolescent may want to have quite lengthy discussions with you around, you know, what is the fallout? What will this mean for us, our family, financial situations, schooling? Are we going to have to move and leave my friends? What will this mean for our community? You know, adolescents may want to have those conversations with you. And I think if they are instigating those conversations, you have those conversations with them, but in a way where you boundary your own anxiety and fear. Mm -hmm. So absolutely talk with them, discuss the issues with them. But if you personally are really anxious or worried, you need to process that with another adult, not with your adolescent. If you've got younger children, I would say, do you want to talk about what's happened? You know, if you ever, you know, want to raise what you're thinking or feeling, I'm here. And then I would purposefully, in a periodic fashion, ask if they want to talk about that or have you been having any thoughts about what we went through? Would you like to discuss it? I think providing people with an opportunity to talk is useful. Forcing children or any adult to talk is really unhelpful. So we never force people to debrief. It can be more traumatizing. But offering the opportunity to can be really helpful. I think what we don't do is tell children that their feelings are wrong tell them to harden up, grow up. What's happened to my five-year-old? You know, where's your good behavior gone? Or you used to be able to do this. Why can't you do that now? Like that's what we don't want to be doing. We take it gentle. We'll be understanding safety and care and love first. Great. Thank you, Jackie. And the other side of this conversation is how do we help people who have been affected by a natural disaster? We want to help. We want to help our friends. We want to say the right things. We want to do the right things. But often in times of extreme need like this, people can get a bit shy because we don't want to say the wrong thing. We don't want to make things worse, which can sometimes actually mean that we don't say anything at all or we don't offer any kind of help, Mm. even though we really want to. So how can people best support survivors of natural disasters? So in the early days, one, don't get hurt if the people that you love are prioritizing people in their community over you. It's really normal and we've got to have some understanding and compassion for that. Two, I I know generally we train people to have emotional check-ins and to say, how are you? But actually when someone is in action mode, you know, asking how they are probably will not resonate in their brain at that time. They probably have no bloody idea how they are because they're just in the doing and the living. So instead, the guidance is to start with the practical. How are you going with shifting that silt? How have you gone with rebuilding that fence? Have you guys found some accommodation long-term yet? Like actually specifically ask questions that are related to that person in their life and the recovery stage that they're at. Then after that, you know, which one shows the person that you know and care and you've retained information and you've got an understanding of kind of their situation. Then in those early stages, I actually think pointed questions like, are you managing to get any sleep? You know, are you remembering to eat? Is anyone cooking your meals for you? Asking some really pointed well-being questions is quite useful. And that may then open the doorway to figuring out really how someone is going and what they might need. But just coming in with a generic, are you okay? I don't think we'll get you very far in the early stages of a natural disaster. 
I also think for the rest of us wanting to support, sometimes it's really useful to be able to send messages of support that doesn't require a response from the person that's suffering. So, you know, be that a natural disaster or somebody that's unwell or someone that's lost a loved one, you know, people can sometimes feel very pleased but overwhelmed by the level of or the influx of support they've received and they might feel this pressure that they need to get back to everybody or respond or people feel guilty that they haven't you know been able to reply or or show gratitude for someone's care I often recommend send a text saying I'm not expecting a reply I'm just wanting I'm just wanting you to know that I'm thinking of you and so it takes off the pressure but it gives the love and support and then you don't have to take it personally if someone doesn't reply to you, like knowing that they really well may not because they're too overwhelmed and there's just too much to do. It's got nothing. You haven't said the wrong thing. You haven't offended them or upset them by checking in. They they just don't have the bandwidth yeah. to respond to you. It's also like the question of what do you need? Again, it comes from the best of intent, right? How can we support? But you're actually putting an extra pressure on that person to come up with the answer. Yeah. It's like when people have a new baby, <laughs> you know? How can I support? When can I come and visit? You know, the best the best come line and I do my dishes. Yeah. Well, the best <laughs> line I ever heard was actually from a maternal nurse from the UK and she says, I always just tell people to take new mothers meals, but to never ring the doorbell, just leave them on the doorstep. And I think it's the same in this situation. If you want to leave food and support, like drop and run, you know, that's really supportive and helpful if people are busy and tied up, for example. Because it's showing you love and you care. But but you're not taking from them. You're not taking up any of their time because their time is so precious at the moment and it's already taken up with so much stuff. Yeah. And I think long-term what can we do as a country is we cannot forget because for people in impacted regions after a natural disaster, their life will not be normal for a long time. But for everyone else, as soon as the news stories stop, your life goes back to reality. And so I actually think that's on the rest of a country or surrounding communities to remember that we we have to remember. <laughs> we have to continue the love, the support, you know, you have to continue to economically support that region so that we don't just forget and leave people to struggle. Thank you so much, Jackie. That is such a great reminder for all of us. And may we continue to remember that for decades and decades to come. We really hope that everyone listening has got a lot out of this conversation. As we said at the beginning, we recognize what an incredibly difficult time this is. And we've only scratched the surface here of the help and tools and advice that is out there. We will uh, attach some links to some resources Mm. about how to cope in the face of a natural disaster in the show notes to this. But yeah, just for everyone listening who has been affected, you are in our hearts. We, We really feel for you, but know that you will be okay. You will get through this, but we know how bloody hard it is now. Thanks, Antonia. And Kia kaha, stand together. Remember that line that social capital is what will support a community to survive from a health, mental health, and economic perspective. So, in it, we get through together. And so, you know, I, I really hope that message came loud and clear today. And I suppose my final message being there is no right way to feel. Normal reactions aren't clinical diagnoses. And that as a country, we owe it to anybody struggling after a natural disaster to remember and stand alongside you. And that is our duty to do that, to be a team of 5 million in a different way. Mm -hmm. So um, 
thank that's you on us. That's on us. And so thank you for everyone that asked for this episode. We really wanted to record this in a way that wasn't actually defined just to Cyclone Gabriel. That could be a resource should there be another natural disaster on our shores in the future, uh, which unfortunately I think when you look at the world at some point in time there will be. So thank you. Thank you, Jackie. And go well, everyone. And we'll see you next episode. Bye. that was what matters most for this week thank you so much for listening if you did enjoy this week's episode it would be great if you could rate review and subscribe to this podcast as that helps let other people know that we're here thanks again see you next time